This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto the University of Pennsylvania's Locust Walk on a gorgeous, picture-perfect May morning here. Kate Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, all my buddies and faculty colleagues, Shane Jensen to my right, Adi Weiner straight away, and Eric Bredlow to my left. Good morning, fellas. Good morning. Morning, Kate. We're going to be here for the next two hours. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. You can join the conversation. We wish you would. Give us a shout. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. 1-844-942-7866. Matty Datz, boss man, producer, waiting for your phone call. He'll also take an email from you. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. If you're listening on one of the times we're replayed, Four or five times over the next week, we're going to be on replay. If it's not 8 to 10 Eastern, it's not live, but you can still reach us via email. You can also follow us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle up there, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We post on various sports analytics matters over the course of the week. It's a great way to stay in touch. You can add us. You can send questions, opinions. Give us over-unders. We do an over-under segment to wrap up the show every week. We, we take yours off the internets. If you want to give us a suggested over-under. Open lines for the next half hour. We have our guest segments coming up at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next one, as usual. But between now and then, fellas, I'm curious, what in the world of sports has caught your eye? So over the last week, have we, I mean, I don't, I, I, I belabor this every week, but it's going to be Cavaliers in the finals. And are you guys ready? Are you guys ready to admit to me that it's going to be Cavaliers in the finals? I'm halfway there. Halfway, halfway there. I, I mean, I was disappointed in the. Sixers. What's the other half? Well, there's another. There's another round. The Celtics, Roy, are going to beat the Cavaliers. <laughs> no. no, they're not. I Come think, on. I think, well, let me say why I think you've been right all along. Besides the fact that you know LeBron is. That's all I want. I mean, no, you're right. No, I mean, here's what I would say. While the Celtics are up three to one on the Sixers, that's a fact. It could have been the other way around. Neither of these teams is good. And not good in the sense of Cavaliers, Warriors, Rockets good. I don't think there's... I would put... Well, obviously, they're already in. The the Celtics and the Sixers are still fighting it out a little bit. I don't know. Three to one odds the Cavs make the finals now? At least 75%. I mean, they're the better team. They're better than either of those teams. When you say neither one of these teams are good, I know it's a little bit of hyperbole, but what are you basing that on? So so a couple things. One is just some of the statistics. So if you look at the offensive points per possession and you compare them in the playoffs to the other teams that are in the playoffs, they just don't score enough points. That's just been the problem in the playoffs. That's part of the problem. Secondly, um, the, the Sixers, in my view, have been exposed, and specifically Ben Simmons has been exposed. Not that he's not a great player for a rookie. 
he can't shoot the ball. Mm -hmm. And so what has happened is, and the Cavaliers know this, obviously the Celtics have figured this out, and so guys are playing off him. He's not beating people to the basket anymore. The only thing that saved our season was T.J. McConnell in the last game, who's extraordinarily fast, who essentially played point guard. They basically played Simmons at the two. When you have, look, for Sixers fans that have been watching this for years, it reminded me of Maurice Cheeks, Hall of Fame player, who couldn't shoot the ball? Hmm. He can't shoot the ball. So it uh, is that a fixable problem? Because yes. Eric, for example, yes. you, you've said this season you said, "Look, Simmons is so amazing that if I had to part with one of the two stars that the Sixers have right now, if I had to build a franchise around one of them, you'd take Simmons over Embiid." But let me let me say the following: Why? And it actually showed in Game Three of the Sixers Celtics series. My theorem of basketball, especially in the playoffs, and I watched it for fifteen years with the Knicks, <laughs> being from New York. Your best player on your team cannot be your center, and here's why. You cannot get that player the ball in the last 15 seconds of a game, and that's what you saw in the Celtic game. What happened? So Al Horford covers him. They double-team Embiid. You can't get, if your best player is your center in today's NBA, you're in real trouble. There has to be someone with their hands on the ball. Even a guy who can't shoot. Even a guy who can't shoot. Because you know what? He's been making foul shots. He's going to create something for someone else. It takes too long to get the center of the ball. And then you're one-dimensional. You can't pass it around. There's three seconds left on the clock. So I, I, I listen to you, and I don't disagree necessarily. Well, but, statistics suggest okay. that the Cavaliers are much better in the playoffs than okay, either so of those other teams. Okay, so it's even listen to them. So, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, let's rewind. My... Uh, my observation is, is the Sixers have been playing, they played extremely well all season, particularly the last 20, 30 games of the season. How do I not know that you're just telling a story to, to describe the last three games? Well, and that's common. I mean, I've heard Kay describe, uh, we don't want to overreact to... A or, little, tell, or tell stories. Or to make, tell stories. To make sense so, of the past. So it sounds a little bit like that. And that, well, and that maybe the, the Sixers really were never quite that good as we, as we thought. Maybe this is the... the, the there's a, the uniqueness of the NBA is that the playoffs just sort of are so different. And, and that just is fertile ground for, for, for convincing ourselves of realities. But I don't know. Maybe this was just... They, they shot terribly, and we saw that, and that was just maybe just bad luck. So there's some statistics that we can look at that I've looked at for the series. No, but let me say an alternative theory is that Boston is not a particularly good team, but they're a solid defensive team. And so it's matchups. You know, one could argue it's matchups. Like, why did the Sixers, why did the Cavs destroy uh, Toronto, beat them 4 nothing? They were the number one seed, but it took them seven games to get to past Indiana. You could argue it's matchups. So maybe the Sixers just don't match up well against the Celtics for whatever reason. I mean, that's the other theory is that the Sixers aren't playing poorly. The Celtics aren't playing particularly great. It's just the way the two teams match up position by position. It's not a set of matchups. But we do know is that the Sixers' uh, three-point percentage is way down. Now, you could argue we could cause an effect. It could be the direction. We know that their points per offensive possession are way down. We know their turnovers are up. And so who do we want to cause for that? Is it a bad three-game stretch? That, that It's a small sample. That's possible. Or we could know that the Celtics have been doing this to every single team this year. It, it's, it's hard to know. I agree with you. It's not, there's no proof that it's not one team or the other. Listen, I'm looking forward to the Sixers getting through. I doubt that they will. But we saw the Cavs look really weak in the opening seven games. And that was and what they, led me to sort of wonder mm-hmm. that this is the, how well they would go on. Oh, I don't and everyone, everyone loves Brad Stevens, and everyone is is, yep. is blown away by what he can do with X's and O's. And it would be fun to see him go against LeBron, not in a one-night thing, but in a series. 
and this is what we're going to get, presumably. Yeah. But, you know, basically, let's go back to Shane started us with he's asking for some credit and he should get some credit because he's been beating this drum for like a month now. And in the last week, it's been like, oh, yeah, right. LeBron, right. if he steps up, <clears throat> we just had to wait for him to wait for him to wake up. But I like the idea of pitting him against a, a, a very scrappy Celtics team and arguably the best coach in the game. Yeah, and I mean it's 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 again it's it's a little bit too bad that there's been these kind of injuries throughout this season because I mean really that I, I, I we would be I think that much more excited for this Celtics right be two great finals. Cavaliers matchup yeah. if, if if they were at if full the Celtics strength. had Kyrie Irving and Gordon Haywood healthy you might not yeah, be no, saying that, the Cavs that, are I, going I think, to the finals that's right? right I think that would be sort of the best shot in the last like few years of LeBron not being in the finals okay so over on the other side we finally have the pairing that we've anticipated. Expected. Now that was uh, the entire season almost foregone. Yeah. So well, I, I, I guess my argument is that all of this was foregone. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, to what extent is it foregone that the Warriors will clip the Rockets? Oh out no, of I don't the think. The, no, I think that it really is kind of a fifty. Maybe not a fifty. I, I, w- I would probably go sixty forty for the Rockets or something. For, I mean, sorry for the for the Warriors. Um, but that that I actually think there is. Rockets have home court. The Rockets not do have home court. All right. They do have home court. And so this is the first time in this stretch that the Warriors yeah. have been playing yeah. on the road to start. Is Steph Curry all the way back? I don't know if he's all the way back. I don't know. Not clear. I mean, he he's plays well, well when he's in. But... He plays well when he's in, but I don't, you don't, I don't think you'll see him play 40 minutes a game during the uh, playoffs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a fascinating series to me. Mm-hmm. Cause, and it's really one that I think um, it's stylistically interesting because I was actually looking last night at the statistics. The... They're the top two teams ever to play each other in terms of offensive points per possession. Oh, my. So they're the two. I mean, I'm saying both teams, and literally, I saw the stat last night, which was fascinating. If the Rockets had made literally, so Warriors were number one this season, Rockets were second. But to show you the delta, literally, James Harden missed a shot at the end of the 82nd game. If he had made it, it would have flipped the other way. Wow. So literally, they Virtual both tie. average 112 points per offense. You know, if they played the whole game at their average offensive possession, they would both score 112, which is the highest of any two teams playing each other. Mm-hmm. But stylistically, they're so different. The Warriors play move-it-around basketball. Harden and Paul play one-on-one basketball. It's going to come down to one or two shots. If James Harden makes the shot, I think Houston's going to win the series because he can get a one-on-one move against anybody, and that's what we're going to find out. So, by the way, Curry played 37 minutes last night. He scored 28. So he's, he's that's a lot. That's I mean, we don't know if he can do it. You know, every game in a series, but apparently he can do it when he needs to. Who should we be paying attention to on the Rockets other than Harden? Well, Chris more... Paul, I think mm-hmm. I saw some of the game. I watched for about ten minutes, and I didn't see Chris Paul miss the shot. I think he ended up with forty points or some number oh, like my. that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Chris Paul is. People also forget he's an amazing defensive mm-hmm. guard as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you start to look at matchups. Harden and Chris Paul, if they're the, if they're playing in the guard positions, which I assume they are, they can cover Curry and Thompson pretty well, or mm-hmm. you know, Curry and Iguodala or whoever they start at the other guard position. I like the matchups defensively for Houston. I, I think you know I think Houston's a good defensive team. And actually, if you look at what Daryl Morey has been saying to combat the the uh, Warriors, they brought in a bunch of guys who are defensive minded. Mm-hmm. Take a look at the article that just came out. Both it's on ESPN. It was posted on five thirty eight. He was drafting players that had the defensive capability to play multiple positions because when the Warriors make you switch, mm-hmm. they always have a mismatch. That's been their goal, to get mm. defensive players that could cover multiple positions. It, it wasn't it, about the <clears throat> offensive side of the ball. It was the defensive side. If you're, I mean, if we're 
I mean, if we're going to kind of break this down in kind of a matchup sense that the war- Rockets may match up particularly well to the Warriors, uh, do you, is there much signal in what they did against each other in the regular season? I mean, I think the numbers, I know they only played three times. I'm pretty sure the Rockets went two and one. Yeah. I know at one point the Rockets had won the first two games. No, I don't put any stock in that whatsoever. None, none, one whatsoever. So I'm curious to know about the interaction of these two offenses. Would you expect them to go down or go up when they play each other? I, good question. I think stylistically, this is my assessment, I don't know this, you're going to see the Warriors try to speed up the game as much as possible, and you're going to see the Rockets try to slow, slow the game down, down yeah. as much as possible. You would think, well, the Rockets are going to try to outscore everybody. I think they realize that if they play run and gun, even though Mike D'Antoni, the, the Rockets coach, is the architect of run and gun um i don't see them trying to just outscore the warriors i don't i i see them as being opportunistic they get a rebound turnover they're going to push the ball i think they would rather have the score whichever team wins they'd rather have the score 105 102 than 130 to 127 i think 105 102 favors them more so what do you think about the Sixers' probabilities at this point? Did they have a shot? If you Obviously, they have a shot, but is it better than 1-5, well, or is it well, more like 1-10? Well, so let me tell you. So the betting odds right now for the Sixers to win the East. so to the entire I'll, East. Let's get through the Cavs. I know. Okay. Wait, wait. I'll, I'll, let's just say they're 50-50 against the Cavs, just for a second, if they got there. I know Shane disagrees. Let's just say they got there. They're plus 1,800 right now. So you bet 100, you win 1,800. So there's three games left. Let's just do a little simple math. A half times a half times a half would get you to one-eighth to win this series. Let's say they're a half to beat the Cavs. Now you're at one-sixteenth. That's about about what the odds are. Mm -hmm. So that's what the betting line is. But they're probably a better shot to win. Honestly, they're probably better than one and eight to win against against the Celtics. No, no. They'd have to win three games. One and one and eight. Am I doing this no, wrong? No, I, I got the math. So why do you think it's not? It's not. <laughs> why do you it's think better than, they're better think than that? Because Yo. I think they're favorites tonight, and they're well, probably they're, will be they're favorite on. the next night. They are actually. This is the other thing and I then, was going to get to. Am I, what, 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 let's unpack this. I, I I know how to multiply three numbers. So yes. if they're better than a half times better than a half. Why are they better than a half? That's what the line is for tonight. I mean, I'm just okay. saying. Okay, I'm 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 saying. Okay, so I mean, you're kind of, it's kind of tautological. You're defining their. You know, like why are they actually? I mean. I, because I think first of all they were favored in every game. I think that the line hasn't that is hasn't walked the direction that Eric has walked into, which is that the Sixers are legitimately worse than the Celtics. The line I think has essentially absorbed the fact that the Celtics have played well, wait, better and me, the Sixers have played worse for three games. Let me agree with you on something and disagree with you on something. You're right. I was shocked to see that the Sixers are favored tonight in the game. They're favored by one and a half points. That surprised me a little bit. Um, I actually didn't say that the Celtics were necessarily better than the Sixers. I said they're both markedly worse than the Cavs, and they're kind of indifferent from each other. It could be 3-1 Sixers right now. It could certainly be 2-2 Sixers right now. I think they're both good teams. I mean, they're the crippled Celtics without Haywood and yeah, Irving. Right. Add yeah. those two guys, and that would be an amazing team. I can't wait to see the Celtics yeah, next year. Yeah, I mean, my disagreement's less about what happens than the rest of the Cel- Sixers-Celtics series more than this assumption that they're somehow 50-50 oh, they're against probably the Cavs. Do you put, that's that's do you put any weight? I know you guys probably the answer is no. Do you put any weight that a team has never come back in basketball from down 3-0? No, so, I don't. I remember 2004. That's baseball. I know. Yeah. I, I'm asking you. I, I, just, I said in basketball I know, looking at you and the Red Sox over I mean, there. I, I think it's somehow ha- it is slightly less likely in basketball just because I think the, the the kind of structure and dynamics of the sport, but I, I no, I, I think it's going to happen. 
at some point uh, in, uh, in basketball's Let me tell you, know, you why it's not, it's not the same as baseball, but I think in basketball, so frequently the teams that go up 3-1 to one are the better team. Yeah. It's unusual that two even teams or a team that's, that's actually better ends up being down 3-1. to one. So I don't think you've seen that many opportunities for that situation. Yeah, and I that's think right. uh, it's rare, so to put the two together. Exactly. I think Audi's kind of, I, I think the first order of why it ha- hasn't happened in basketball and, happen- and has happened in the other sports is I think basketball of all sports has playoffs where there still is a real talent disparity between the teams. The other thing off. that's more surprising maybe of the stat in basketball is I, I don't remember the number exactly, but let's just say 200 times it's happened that a team's gone down 3-0 and they've never come back. There actually have been something like Matt, Matt Batts, our producer, can look this up, maybe 10 or 15 times where it's actually gotten to a Game 7. Now then you start to say to yourself, now wait a second. So it got to a Game 7, but the team that was up 3-1 won all of those Game 7s. That actually, to me, is more surprising. It is. You're right. Once you get to a yep. Game 7, by then, then it, it certainly goes really against my momentum argument, because yeah. the one no. team has won three in a row by yeah. definition. It's a home, home, Apparently home they court, call this the zigzag. This is something. I, I, I heard this from listening to uh, uh, the, the uh, Bet the Prof- Process podcast. They have this term called... The zigzag in basketball, which basically means uh, autocorrelation, negative autocorrelation, which is exactly the opposite of momentum. Mm-hmm. And so right. the, the, if you apply it in, in this context, when, you, when you're up three to nothing and you end up getting three three, you're so motivated to recover that you're become doesn't, the favorite. Doesn't home court build a little negative autocorrelation? It, in? Well, absolutely it, does, right? So, yeah. so this is Wharton Moneyball. You can join the conversation one eight four four wharton that's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Got the whole crew in here this morning. Open lines for the next fifteen minutes or so. So the other thing that caught my eye is I don't know if you know. Obviously, back to what Shane said about the Cavs. So they've obviously swept the Raptors. Um, I actually just simple math to do. So they've now won ten straight playoff games against the Raptors. So I actually did. So what I did is I said, so what would their? Let's imagine independent games for a second. What would their odds have to be in each game? So that winning 10 straight games was the least statistically significant possible. In other words, if I took some number, raised it to the 10th power, so that's whatever their odds are times 10 games, equals, let's say, 0.05. The answer turns out to be about 75%. So they would have to have had a 75% chance of winning each game, because 0.75 to the 10th is roughly 0.05. I started to think to myself... That's an amazing streak because I don't think they were a 75% odds team to win each of those games. And I mean, the betting line certainly wasn't them at 75%. Well, there were many of the games where. Time to chime in. It's, no, no. It's LeBron. I understand. Yeah. No, no, no. I was just on. doing. I, I know. I was yeah. just yeah. doing a calculation yeah. that okay. said it just seemed that's a pretty amazing streak right. for one playoff team to beat another 10 consecutive games. I want to I wanna kind of transition from that to. One of the most exciting things, I'm going to bring us over to hockey, the other playoffs. Our long national nightmare is over. The Penguins are finally out. (laughs) They are not going to win their third Stanley Cup in a row. And who vanquished them finally is the Washington Capitals, Capitals, who have struggled against that team. So maybe in some there's some theoretical future where you know the Raptors will actually overcome LeBron. Well, what the about, Capitals can inspire? What them. about the Rockets overcoming the Warriors? Yeah. Would you put that at the same level? No, 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 no. I mean, I actually don't do. No, I mean, again, the, 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 LeBron, the, the, LeBron, LeBron. Sorry, are, the, Sidney Crosby in hockey is kind of like LeBron in basketball. Just so, but it's not as strong because. 
No a single player in hockey can dominate like a single player in basketball can. But the, the Penguins have the best player in hockey right now. Um, and they, they that has basically fueled their drive to two straight Stanley Cups. And they're not going to get their third, thankfully. Um, but Can you, you just know, give us give us that don't follow hockey as much yeah. as you do a perspective? Is this as big as in 2004 when the Red Sox finally beat the no. Yankees? No, no, no. It's not a rivalry of that There's magnitude. not been a hundred histories, a hundred years of history like behind like the Capitals versus the Penguins. But, I mean, there's... The Penguins have been a dominant team in hockey lately, and the Capitals have always sort of been this kind of team that could not quite get over the hump. And they've played well. They've had seasons they've played where they very had the, well. the highest they've had, they've won points the in hockey. They've had the most points in hockey. They've won the President's Trophy but several times, but they have not been able to put it. This is their first time in the semifinals. Basically, right. or in the uh, conference finals. Is it a long finals. time, right, or is it ever? The first time. Okay, that's a big deal. The Caps, yeah. this is the first time they've made it this far. Yeah. Or at least the Ovechkin era caps. So the caps of the last, like, 20 years or so. Okay. okay. Um, so that's really exciting. Well, on, in the West, and on the other Las side, Vegas team. That's the, I'm not even sure. That might be the more exciting uh, result is that the Vegas Golden Knights, an expansion team, mm-hmm. is in the conference finals, mm-hmm. which is unbelievable. Can they were supposed to be like playing on the scraps. Can I just understand left how behind they, by all the so, other teams? I, I apologize, I don't yeah. follow hockey. How did they build their roster as an expansion team? Like, how did they it's, get it, players? It's basically how I think every expansion draft has ever worked. Um, <clears throat> you know, they basically grab players off the currently existing team. The currently existing teams can, can protect, protect a certain number of so players. many players. You're telling me that a team? I know it was an expansion. It's literally they grab scraps from yep. other players and players they drafted, yep. or just and that's a Best team that's in the conference hockey. finals. <laughs> what does Con- that say about hockey? Finals. I don't know. That's right. That's we, what's curious. We, we, to we me. had this conversation last week a little bit you know? because yeah. we we talked about this team having a chip on its shoulder. All mm-hmm. these players came in. Yeah. They were basically castoffs, and there's some sense that they have an attitude and a culture on the team that gives them an advantage. And we hypothesize. Here's the claim that the returns to effort are higher in hockey than they are in any of the other four major sports. And if this team's just out there busting its tail more than hockey teams usually do, that that is an advantage in hockey in a way that it wouldn't be an advantage well, in, say, yeah, and I mean, <clears throat> I think what it says more about hockey is that the talent distribution in hockey is Pretty, more uniform than most other sports. That, right. I mean, because the tuning parameter here is for, I mean, you could oh, say oh, that oh, this what, is crazy. What, you could say t- this is a very, sorry. What's a tuning parameter? Oh, it's something that you can vary in order to get different characteristics to whatever procedure you're doing. The tuning parameter for the expansion draft is how many players <clears throat> each of the currently existing teams can protect. Right. If I told you that you could protect no player on your team, then whatever team is you know grabbing play, then they're going to be able to assemble an all star squad, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, if, but I, but if I say you can protect half your players. Can you form a team in the second half of players across all hockey that is good enough to compete? You'd, you'd argue no, that that seems crazy. You're taking why would that one half of everybody's team. In basketball, it would, it would be well, a disaster, yeah, that's right. That's for right. example. So it, it, the fact that they're able to accomplish this says that the talent distribution hockey is a little bit more, you know, that you really do need to look at your four, third, fourth, you know, lines in hockey. 
and you can form a team from have, those looking Has their success been driven by, like, you know, there's always the, the lore in hockey. Matter of fact, one of my former colleagues, our former colleague Dave Schmidtline, wrote a paper about can a hot goalie win the Stanley Cup. Has it been because their goalie has their been goalie extraordinarily has been hot. hot? Yeah, so that's at least the lore in so hockey that's, is that that's, that's the a, great equalizer. Is that a thing? No, it, yeah. it is a thing. I mean, it's, it's weird. I mean, it's, again, a very retrospective thing that, like, you know, the team with the hot goaltender tends to win oh, the Stanley Cup. Surprise. Right, but, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean certainly in the case of the Vegas Golden Knights, their goalie has been, I think their MVP in the playoffs. So why was the that's what I was asking. Why was the goalie? No. Um, it's not always the case. But not it does. protected. Let's go back. Is the goalies particularly? So they, they, they were they were they, they could they could protect seven forwards, three defensemen, and one goaltender. Yeah. So uh, arguably, this guy was not on, their goalie was not good was enough viewed, to be the protected goalie on any team. Yeah, but that that is one no place no no no. It's not the. Pro- he was not good enough to be the protected goalie on the key team he was on. Right, exactly. So the second oh, best goalie. Right. He was the second best goalie. Oh, right. yeah. He, he might have been. that team, but right, could have right. been the could have been middle the, of the distribution. Right, right, right. The best second best goalie in yeah. hockey is a very good goalie. Uh, uh, right, and, and they und- get Undeniably, yeah. but okay. So but the question is, is that if you have a, if you, how many teams have a second best goalie that's extraordinary? A lot, have, like a, a lot have good second You only need one for right. this to work, but yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, this this makes me wonder what kind of analytics they brought to bear to the draft process. Yeah, no, good and I point. mean, and it's interesting. I've, I've, I've talked uh, to Namita Nandakumar, who we had on last week, who's certainly the expert in hockey as far as I'm concerned. And basically... She looks at the you know what they did with that expansion uh, expansion draft and was not impressed. You know, it, it wasn't like she looked at that prospectively and said, "Oh, they they did a really great job with this." They made several questionable decisions in her mind, but you know, it, it, obviously retrospectively, it yeah. looks like they. So we don't know how much of this was kind of a little bit of you know luck versus really wise. Uh, selection of players. Yeah. Clearly, there's got to be. They, did, have to have a, but I want, they obviously did a pretty good job. I want to go but. back, though, to the analytics question that Adi asked before, which is, does it say something, not negatively, maybe positively, does it say something about hockey? In other words, you made a statement. I'll combine your two statements. Does it say something about hockey and one player can't win you the Stanley Cup trophy? So what it says is maybe the, and back, I'll, I'll combine all three of your points, Cade's point. Let's say we take someone that's at the 80th percentile at every position, and that just happened. Maybe there's an unprotected. Maybe use analytics to find someone at the 80th percentile at every position that happens not to be protected by every team. You get all of them together. So you have an all-star 80th percentile team. You put them together, and Boom. and you have effort, yeah. and miraculously, there it is. Yeah. And you know what? It, it's interesting. It's a great theory, and I think it's. I mean, obviously, it's coming out this year, but it might be just true in hockey. I, I love. I love the Shane's point that it depends fundamentally on this on on the the how much of the squad you can protect. Yeah, and yes. so other sports have gone through this process, and because we've seen such trashy expansion teams, it suggests that they've gotten that parameter wrong in a way. They've yeah. allowed teams. No, I mean, to I mean, much. you know, I, I don't know if it's. You know, if if we were to sort of read nothing but, you know, that there's no real luck component to what's been happening here, maybe the NHL actually designed a really good expansion draft right. in the sense of this tuning parameter. I mean, they, gave, they gave, they were able so, to produce an immediately so, competitive real, team. Real quickly, I mean, what, from a league's perspective, how good do you want your expansion team to be? If they could have just said ahead of time, they, they could have chosen the quality of the team ahead of time. By the way, they could have analyzed this whole thing and they could have solved for that objective had they wanted to. Yep. Why not let the team be good? Why, yeah. Do you really want to Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who begin their franchise history on a twenty-six game losing streak? 
because they got the tuning parameter wrong in they 1975. Did. No, and I mean, I think I think if you were to take the NHL's perspective on this, I think that what what's happened is ideal. I mean, they. I mean, it's not like the Golden Knights are are an All Star team. They're not so much better than the rest of the league that they got the tuning parameter wrong on the kind of the other side. They haven't right. assembled an All Star team, but they have assembled a highly competitive team. No, I think I think uh, I think Eric put it nicely that you can't protect all your teams. So if you go from team to team, you can always find someone who's probably in the upper quartile. But my question is, if you know the draft is coming, you might want to. What could you do to to balance that out? If I, let's say I am a team with two tremendous goalies, and that's great for me because I have a backup one. Shouldn't I trade that second one and keep yeah. them? Maybe. Because yeah, yeah. I'm that's get, right. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. so maybe the teams just didn't quite figure or it just, out, or just hope the other or the expansion team doesn't have uh, a Daryl Morey or someone doing really good analytics, and maybe they don't see that you are second best. Let's take an example. Let's take a team with a great goalie and a very good, great second best goalie. Maybe that second best goalie never gets to play because the great goalie's great. So now you're having a Another team trying to say, I wonder how good I'll make this up. I wonder how good the Pittsburgh Penguins' second best goal. I only saw him play three games. Yeah. I have no idea whether he's yeah, good right, or not. Right. So you could also hope on bad analytics or or small sample sizes where it's just hard to tell. I mean, it's it's interesting too because the, the goalie that they did, uh, Mark Andre Fleury, who's having an amazing year. Um, it's, it's not like he was an unknown. I mean, this is a guy who's been playing hockey for a long time. He just sort of was regarded as kind of... But he had NHL kind of, experience, Oh, yeah. Too. I mean, he was with the Pittsburgh Penguins back like early, like like a decade ago. Uh, he's been playing for a long time. So, by, by the way, the other the other matchup um, that is inter- super interesting right now is the Jets-Predators. So, yes, Winnipeg, so Nashville, that's going to a Game 7. They're going to Game 7 tomorrow night. That's so, right. this is an elimination game in Round 2 of the playoffs. Moreover, it's Winnipeg. How can you not pull for Winnipeg? Oh, I know. I know. Wow, that's right. That's right. I mean, what what else do they have going what else for them? Do they no, have? Seriously. My gosh. Yeah, no. No, it's exciting. I mean, you know that game? all Canada's hopes come down. Winnipeg? All Canada's hopes come down to Winnipeg this year. I mean, it's just glorious they still have a hockey team, Winnipeg. Well, they didn't for a long time. They 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 lost their hockey team. Is that what happened? Back. Yeah, well, I would have thought they didn't have a the team. NHL. The NHL's got this whole thing where they they have they don't realize it's a regional sport, and they keep trying to put teams in places like Atlanta. They and Arizona. And, yes, and and the Winnipeg Jets were the Atlanta Thrashers of like you know a few. Years and your ago. team growing up favorite was who? Calgary Flames were also started in Atlanta. So I'm, no, I'm just asking the question: if <laughs> one know. of the if Calgary or Winnipeg plays the Boston Bruins, your adopted sports home, who yeah. do you root for? Um, Calgary, and I, I never really got into without the hesitation. And oh, one, of course, yeah. I, I mean right. Boston is my sports allegiance as far as football and uh, baseball. and baseball, which were kind of the new sports. Eric, what to happens me. if the Knicks play the Sixers for you? Good question. Ooh. So I've great question. So I've I gave up on the Knicks a long time ago. Um, so I would root for the Sixers. How, in how that many matchup. years into the current ownership did you give up on them? <laughs> on the Knicks? Yeah. Oh no no! I have I've been a Sixer fan over a Knicks fan for probably the last fifteen years. Yeah. I just I just. You, you Some, need to be given license. If your team's owner is sufficiently bad, you yeah, should have license right. to, cha- to cash it in. There should be an yeah. office you can come well, in. Like, lived in another city teams for don't deserve enough. unconditional loyalty. And your kids are probably Sixers fans, Eric. You know. Oh, yeah. for sure. I, so, well, I think I've told the way, this story all, many yeah, times. When the any, Yankees... any Redskins fan that wants to like choose a new team, we should just let them do that. Guilt no, free. For, we're oh, we're giving out sure. licenses, everyone. All listeners, you have Shane's allowance to switch teams. What franchise in each of the four sports do teams defend? most have license. We're going to license one team in each sport to cash in their allegiance because of bad ownership. We've already got I the Redskins, Redskins gotta win because of football, Snyder. Yeah. Knicks because of Dolan. What about on the baseball front? 
Oh, baseball front? Oh, the Marlins. I mean, not that they have any. Not that they have any, but they have the worst owners in baseball. I was going to say the Padres, just because they've been so historically bad, but I'm I'm, I'm corrected. The Marlins are the worst. Do we know anything about hockey ownership to say? Uh, No, probably not. All right. All right, fellas. Well, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, Eric, Adi, Shane. You can join us. Give us a ring at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Even if it's one of the times we're replayed, drop us a note. It's a great way to reach out in the middle of the week or at the, over the weekend whenever we're not live. You can follow us on Twitter at WMoneyBall. At W Moneyball is our Twitter handle. We're tweeting throughout the week on sports analytics. You can also follow our guests up there. Speaking of guests, in the next half hour, we are delighted to welcome to the show, show CJ Handron. CJ is the co-founder and CEO of Diamond Kinetics. You may not have heard of Diamond Kinetics, but they're doing some very cool things on essentially player tracking, player performance metrics in baseball. They've got about half the league using their equipment now. They've got some new technology we're going to hear about. CJ, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Cade. CJ, where are you calling in from today? Uh, Pittsburgh. You're, you're, you, you are based out of Pittsburgh? We are based out of Pittsburgh. Yeah, All right. We, uh, we, we've got the bulk of our team here in Pittsburgh uh, and then have uh, a portion of our team out, out and about in different uh, baseball and softball markets around the country uh, helping, helping implement our technology. Well, so I understand you, you you're from you're from the you're from North Carolina. Did your undergrad at North Carolina State, and then an MBA at the University of Pittsburgh. Is that why you're in Pittsburgh now? Did you hit the grad school there and just never leave? Yeah, yeah, that is. Um, came here for grad school, and that's actually ultimately what uh, what led to starting Diamond Kinetics. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a passionate through and through baseball guy. Um, feel like I owe the game a lot in, in life uh, and you know, following my, my grad school at Pitt, I actually stayed at the university and, and ran a uh, technology commercialization accelerator uh, and I got approached by an engineering professor, uh, Dr. Buddy Clark uh, who on the first day I met him shows up with a laptop under his arms and a, and a baseball bat over his shoulder and uh, says hey I've got you know this baseball technology I'm working on that I think could be really exciting and, and I was wow. as soon as I saw it. Wow. So, um, that- so you know we yeah, we, we you know, fast forward a little bit from there. We we spun the company out of uh, the University of Michigan and the University of Pittsburgh and licensed a number of patents, and, and we're off and running from there. So I'm going to want to hear a little bit more about that background, but first talk about the technology. So this is something that an engineer created on his own, and just he shows up with a laptop and a bat, and, and it's the base, basically the seat of the idea is there. It's an operational thing. What does it do exactly? So uh, it is a you know, we have a we have a, a range now of different you know largely performance driven products in, in both hardware and software. But at its core, um, you know we're we're a sensor driven platform. Um, so we can use uh, high power sensors to uh, very precisely track motions, uh, and so we do that now both in hitting and pitching. Uh, and the final form of the products end up being a, a small sensor that can either attach. To the knob of the baseball bat or, or now go right into the knob of the bat uh, and, and and then as well now we've actually put them inside the baseball but it allows us to to track in real time um, 
you know exactly what's happening, uh, whether it's you know angles, speeds, positions, uh, that allows us to give a, a much more granular view of of what's happening as a as a complement in thinking about how you you learn the game, how you improve, how you make changes. So this the the motion tracking technology that has emerged over recent years has been transformative and will continue to be for some time. And players are able to know things about their swing plane, for example, and pitchers are able to know things about ball rotation, for example. They never were able to know before. What's different here, I believe, is that you guys aren't dependent on cameras set up all around a park, which is obviously expensive. You get that same information, but you get it from the bat or the ball directly. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that is largely correct. Um, on the hitting side, it's a little different uh, because of you know what that motion is. Um, it's is really difficult to pick it up with a camera. Um, so, you know, what you can track with sensors um, on the bat or in the bat uh, is actually all really new information uh, with with sensor tracking capabilities. Uh, whereas the cameras on the field can track the outcome and the movement on the field. Uh, in pitching, it's a little different. So the, the tracking technology uh, via camera and radar has has been there for longer that can track the the ball out of the hand. Uh, but largely, the, the exciting element of this is the is the accessibility of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has the ability to reach you know at every every stage and level of the game and, and influence it in some really exciting ways. Right. So you so the, the examples I've seen were probably the earlier examples where you you just attach this thing to the bottom of the bat essentially. So I can imagine. Uh, it might alter the swing a little bit, or certainly you're not going to go into a game and bat with it in that situation. But presumably technology is evolving. You said now you can put this chip or whatever it is, these sensors, into the bat itself, into the bottom of the handle. Is that right? Yeah, we can now. Um, and, and I think that's been a goal of ours, uh, and I think most people have seen that as the, the natural evolution and extension of the technology. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you we, we ended up, you know, we were approved for game use when it's strapped on the bat and still are. Uh, throughout Actually, this year, throughout all of the minor leagues, you can use oh, wow. a, a okay. sensor strapped on the bat. Uh, it doesn't really, it, it doesn't change the performance or the swing at all because it's, it's below the hands. Yep. Uh, but... But it is not an optimal user experience because as a player, you still kind of feel like there yeah. might be something down there. Right, right, right. So it was natural evolution to go in the knob. And you know, we really started that uh, this time last year uh, and started working with uh, Marucci, who's been the, the most active and, and kind of forward thinking on that front and starting to put sensors right in the knobs of bats. And that's now really starting to expand uh, into more manufacturers. And, and uh, you're seeing leagues and organizations uh, in fact, Major League Baseball just announced a, a couple of weeks ago, right around opening day, that they were approving uh, embedded sensors for the Gulf Coast League, the Arizona Summer League, and the Arizona Fall League, um, you know, which is really exciting. NCAA softball has approved them for gameplay. So well, this is to see this move towards uh, being able to use them in the game so that you've got game data, not just practice data. Right. And is this, right. a, is this approval for the sensors you're talking about in the bat or also the ones that you were talking about briefly that are actually embedded in the ball itself? Uh, this is all bat related. So the the ball is a brand new product for us that just launched um, a couple of months ago. Uh, so everything that I just mentioned on gameplay approval is all hitting and, and bat related. So uh, that w- there are obviously implications for professional athletes. And one of the things you're saying is that the technology, the, the ability to sense the swing is better with this technology than with cameras because cameras have trouble. But setting that aside for a moment, I find this borderline mind-blowing for the popular market, that kids, recreational softballers, high school students, whatever, 
can go are going to be able to soon, presumably, go out and buy bats and balls that give you this tech. And and then you have a guy on the side with an iPad, and he says, "Oh, that was that was a hundred miles an hour. That was eighty seven miles an hour." It's like you real time feedback in the sandlot, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, and and I think it's already happening. You know, our, our users and and to me, this is the you know. It's, it's exciting. It's kind of mind blowing for me too, is that uh, our users range from, you know, eight years old to, you know, o- over half of major league baseball organizations and they're using the same product. Um, and, and we still need to evolve and learn with them on the best ways that you use it at different, different levels. Um, but it is that accessible. Um, and if you have a smartphone in your pocket or, or a tablet, um, you have that kind of access in, in real time. Um, to, in a lot of respects, the exact same kind of tools that, that the pros are using. I mean, who doesn't want this? You go, I, I want to go right now. I want to go to the softball field right now and take batting practice and come away with you know data. Knowing on how hard you hit it. Yeah. And, then, and then more than that, the feedback you get, if you're trying to get better, to have that kind of feedback like after every swing or after every at bat. Sounds remarkable. Well, it's also particularly remarkable for amateurs because we have so many things we do wrong that there's so many opportunities. <laughs> Talk about tuning parameters. Yeah, you get to, to change us. things, <laughs> and then you can really see you get the the, the feedback and, and really start to get better. I'm questioning on at the at the major league level where they're already so so excellent at what they do. Um, what kind of uh, information can you give, uh, say, a professional or, or almost professional or, or almost major league uh, player feedback that they, re- that they don't either get? or how, I mean, what kind of information can they use? Well, I think we see them use it in, in a few different ways um, and, and kind of broad brush um, and apply it in um, – there's a natural application of it just in talent evaluation. And so whether that's in scouting, you know, heading into a draft or whether it's, you know, evaluation within your own organization – having some additional objective information to, to feed into that process is really valuable. Um, on the player development side, I think we see it um, used in a couple of different ways. So I think you know, there's a number of major league organizations I think are using it to try to, you know, I would say answer some big questions, right? Can you learn from it in a way where fundamentally you think differently about how you approach hitting? Right. Um, and, and I think that's under, you know, that that's, that's ever evolving. Um, but down at a, a more granular level, uh, if you have a particular hitting philosophy or approach or swing path or plane, uh, this gives you a way to define what you want that to be, show the player, track it, and measure it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've, we've heard it referred to from time to time as as a really strong maintenance tool. Um, so because right. the, the changes and, and the small you know, differences are hard for the eyes to see sometimes, uh, when the player's going through a rough stretch during a season, can we go back to look at some data from spring training and say, hey, is there a small change in hand cast right. or is there a small change in approach angle that we can't quite see in video, but you know the, the data shows us there's a little something there that we want to try to tweak. Yeah, CJ, this is Eric Bradley. I wanted to ask you a question. Could... Um you obviously, I assume, let's call it uh, Diamond Kinetics collect, now might have a big database. So let's imagine I swing the bat you, with a sensor in the bat. Will like, Do I get feedback on, I'll make this up, major league players have the following swing plane, swing speed, etc. Here's where I am, and then I can compare myself to a reference distribution of excellent players. Because I would imagine one of the values of feedback is, and here's what a professional major leaguer level looks like, and here's where you are. Is that a available through your they software have that with tennis rackets i think yeah 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 it is um so you can go into our app right now you could take a swing um and you can compare not just against our professional database now we don't show you the names no no no, no. i'm not talking about i said the distribution <laughs> notice i didn't say yeah, the specific absolutely. names um, 
Yeah, so we do, uh, and and not just at that level. You can change it to every level from you know an eight-year-old up. Um, so if you're an eight-year-old and you want to see what the averages are, what the benchmarks are for ten-year-olds, you can do that. For twelve-year-olds, hmm. for you know, I'm a high school player and I want to see what does a D1 player's data look like. How do I compare to that? Where are the areas I should you know, potentially try to focus or improve? Uh, you can do all that in real time, just toggling between the databases. We quickly represent the data to you, and and you can you know you can have a quick snapshot, swing by swing, if you want, or over you know a longer history of time. Could you talk to us about? I could imagine just sitting here thinking about tons of applications. Could you tell us, tell our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, maybe some of the applications we're not thinking of? Like I could even imagine this could be for injury prevention. Like, oh, Eric Bradlow's bat speed is slowing down. He's fatigued. Maybe that means I should get him out of the game. Or I look at his swing plane. It's not his normal swing plane. I wonder if he's got a hip flexor that's causing his swing plane to change. Could you talk about some of the application sure. areas that maybe we're not directly thinking about? Yeah, I think that's one of them. You know, it's an interesting one you bring up, and we, we have, uh, and we, we saw this bubble up from one of the, the collegiate programs we work with, uh, who started looking at fatigue analysis for BP. Uh, not as much in the game, but, you know, every player based, based on strength and, you know, just physical characteristics, um, you know, wears down at, at a different level. Uh, and there was a historically, and, and when I was growing up playing, you know, the, the cage rat mentality was there, which is you just, you know, hit, 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 and, and then hit some more. Um, and as, you know, as it turns out, you know, there's something to be said for looking and saying, hey, does the does the mechanics in the path of the bat start to break down? Does bat speed, you know, right. start to indicate, hey, this player should take more than 15 swings at a time before right. taking a small break. But he can take 25 over there. Now, so that's certainly one interesting application. Um, I think another is um, – is is bat fitting right so we don't think sometimes about the the piece of equipment in our hands but it has a major influence on um, on metrics on what you can do on the bat speed you can create uh, and the ability to to use data to inform that versus just you know let me see how it feels in my hands or let me see how long i can hold it out straight without you know my arm dropping you know whether it's at the you know professional level where they're fine tuning you know down to you know fractions of ounces or whether it's the amateur player who walks into a you know sporting goods store and says i have, I have no idea where to start with this you know i have a height weight chart but that's about it um, you know, data can be a tremendous uh, resource and asset there. We're talking to C.J. Handron. C.J. is the co-founder and CEO of Diamond Kinetics. This is an organization out of Pittsburgh, PA, who's working with half of Major League Baseball now, implanting chips into bats and chips into balls so they can get more precise measures of what they're doing, both at the plate and throwing. So, C.J., on the bat, the bat selection, bat fitting, it's been a while since we've talked. We had a conversation years ago with a physicist about that. Alan Nathan, I think it was. Do we do do we think people? Is there a common bias in bat fitting? Do are are people inclined to like hit with too big a bat or too heavy a bat, or or is it just noisy? No, I, I, we think there is a bias, uh, and it's interesting that you a mentioned Alan Nathan. So you know, Alan's a, a close advisor of our company. And, oh, excellent! And has been since the very beginning. Uh, but it's funny because when when all of this really started, uh, you know, Dr. Clark, Buddy Clark. Um, that's the problem he was starting to try to solve, which was, you know, as a youth coach, watching kids and parents just, you know, sort of lean on the side of, hey, you know, take the biggest one you can swing, Johnny, because uh, that's going to help you <laughs> right. hit the ball the farthest. And in reality, um, you know, you, you need this balance between being able to create bat speed, but having something heavy enough that, you know, creates a lot of momentum at, at impact. Uh, and so, you know, there's not enough, there's not enough data out there necessarily that, you know, can 
definitively support a bias, but I think most that you would talk to, whether it's the equipment manufacturers, you know, retailers, um, those that have an understanding of, of how to think about bat fitting, um, feel like more often than not the, the player swinging a bat that's, that's too big or too heavy. Mm-hmm. There's just not a good way to demonstrate that to them, uh, although we're working on that. Yeah, CJ, this is Eric Bradlow again. Have you actually tied the sensor data from the bat to outcomes? So that would seem to me like, you know, what happens on the actual plate appearance, maybe even tie it to other data, which is fielding data or other stuff. So you could say to a player, well, I know you can swing at this speed, but actually your data suggests that you do better if you throttle it back because you get more control or something like that. Is there any relationship between your data and other data sets that are out there? I think that's what we're going to start to see happen over the next 12 to 24 months. Uh, the, the, the ability to use in-game becomes a, a requirement to make that happen. Um, and so I know that uh, at you know, certainly with the minor league approvals that have now been put in place, I, I know there are clubs who are positioned to say we, we want to we want to marry it all together. Um, and so I think there will be some really interesting you know, things that come out of that that will be tie it to the outcome compare it against what's happening when you're not in the game, uh, being able to look at does the swing change, you know, when it's you know, live game left-handed, you know, facing left-handed pitching versus right-handed pitching, a whole lot of things that you can break down there. Uh, I think the outcomes that were, that are in the, in, in the near view for us in marrying together are, um, are the off-the-bat uh, outcomes that you see every day on StatCast at this point. So exit velocity, launch angle, uh, things mm-hmm. that you definitely can correlate back to you know, what you did with the swing to create those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we will be launching uh, within our 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 platform uh, the ability to track and measure that now as well very soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that the individual user, the 9, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old, um, can have that piece of information, which they can compare with you know what they just saw on TV you know in a broadcast, but can also marry it together, and we can help them marry it together with what they're doing in their swing that is influencing their launch angle or their exit velocity. Right. What about on the on the ball side, the pitching side? This is a newer product for you guys, and it's also probably a be- a better developed um, existing technology. What what are you? What's the frontier that you're pushing there? What's what are you most excited about? Yeah, you know, and, and it's it's interesting, you know, living in our world because you and you just summed that up perfectly. It's a it's a better um, uh, the the ability to capture the information that we get with a smart ball. Most of it, um, in, in a lot of ways, you can already get that. Uh, it's just not tremendously accessible, uh, and so. Um, you know, sometimes you use the better widget analysis or analogy here. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, the ability to bring that information to make it highly portable, um, so not being bound to um, an installation or a system. Uh, so making it portable, making it very accessible in real time, um, doing that in a very cost-effective way, again, allows us to bring that to a much wider audience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and that's really exciting for us. And, and we're you know we're we're just in the infancy of that. It, you know, even though we've been working on it for almost two years to to get it ready and make sure that it you know is it performs exactly like a baseball would. It feels like a baseball. Right. Um, I think we're we're just scratching the surface, and we, we're really just starting on where is that going to go uh, mm-hmm. from a data perspective, and 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 really how we can evolve that to make it really usable, you know, at younger levels and in the amateur market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. CJ, we're down to just a few minutes here. Curious about your experience talking to clubs. You walk in with this great technology. You're excited about it. What have you learned about 
about the process? What have you learned from dealing with basically the entire major league, um, all the teams in the major leagues and multiple college teams? What has surprised you? Um, I think that the, you know, probably the biggest learning for us is that we're all learning together, right? And, and um, you know, we, it is on the hitting side, especially when we started this, it's all such new information, even at that level, uh, that it required, you know, time and engagement and process to start to collectively figure out what's the right information, how do we apply it, how do we use it. Uh, we, we've certainly seen an evolution from early on the the person that would reach out to us would be very much on the baseball analytics side of things. Uh, right. Now that has shifted where uh, it's directors of sports science, it's oh. player development, uh, and oh. so it's moving in to the player development side of things, um, you know, and, and not leaving the analytics world, uh, but not being driven by the individual who's just saying, hey, more data is better. Right. Um, and I think that's an exciting, you know, exciting evolution for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're, we're all learning together what the best applications are, and that's how we treat the professional relationships we have. That's not our business, and our, our, our market is in the amateur market, but what we learn there really helps us drive product development, application, knowledge, mm-hmm. you know, that we can, we can help amateurs use the tool so that they can get better faster. Yeah, I kind of anticipate this is something that you walk in with this great technology, and then by working with so many different organizations, you find out how it can be used. And, and, and even though it's your technology, they're going to be the ones who tell you things that you've never heard of before and you've never thought about before. But that requires a certain humility on your part, right, to go in and stay open like that. Yeah, and then it requires the ability to, to understand and say, well, what's right for them uh, isn't necessarily right for a nine-year-old. And so how do we right. take that learning and figure out how to apply it, communicate it, create an experience around it uh, that makes serve the same purpose but in a different way? Right. Uh, and that's the that's the exciting part. It's probably the most challenging piece of all that, too. Well, it's a heck of a marketing tool you have there in selling amp to amateurs that you, you've got the same product that you sell to the to the big leaguers. CJ, we're going to let you go. Thank you much for taking the time out of your day and your work to, to talk with us here this morning. Oh, absolutely. I really appreciate you having me, guys. Thanks. You bet. You bet. You bet. That was CJ Handron. CJ is co-founder and CEO of Diamond Kinetics. Diamond Kinetics. You can read about them on the web. They're out of Pittsburgh, PA. They're selling into half the major league and developing in the amateur market as well putting technology into bats and balls that allows you to get metrics that heretofore only major leaguers and generally with a bunch of cameras have been able to get. That's the halfway point of our show. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern AM. Rolling up to the top of the hour, 9 AM live here. Cade Massey hosting with Audi Weiner, Shane Jensen, and Eric Bradlow, the whole crew. Join us if you'd like. We'd love to have you give us a call. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Business radio, easy email. Business radio at SiriusXM.com. Especially if you're listening one of the times that it's not live, four or five times, it'll be replayed, including this afternoon, some over the weekend. Drop us an email. It's a good way to reach out. Also, follow us on Twitter at WMoneyBall. You can heckle us. You can ask us questions. You can give us over-unders. Guys, we were heckled. We named the Redskins fans as the teams, the team in the NFL who most have license to cash in their allegiance 
and get a new one, mm. guilt free. Yeah. And 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 Mike S on Twitter, Mike S on Twitter says, "What about the Browns? Really? Oh, yeah, right. the Browns? Yeah. No, I mean football. Unfortunately, has a few. You could argue, like you know, the San Diego Chargers and like you know, they've got some competition. Oakland Raiders have some competition. In there Why too. is it football that does that? Is it mm. particularly susceptible to bad ownership? Well, I think a lot of it is what Kate has studied in his research is that people tend to – like I think about the – well, you mentioned the Buccaneers earlier this year. I think the Buccaneers turned one draft pick in the first three rounds into four. And so I, regardless, you would say four draws are better than one. Mm-hmm. I think people overestimate the value of really high picks and therefore that they just keep making these same – I'll call it you know Massey-Thaler mistakes over and over again. They just do. It's got to be more than just the draft that causes owners to be bad. It's a, it's a good, it's a good it's start. A, it's a good. It's a. I mean, Kate's I, not I talking. Mean, I, he has too many clients. <laughs> well, no, and I, I think you know it's certainly the case that the football like has had this. It has this real disparity in that there's certainty. You know, every it seems like every decade there's like a, a kind of a dominant team, and that does not leave a lot of championships for everybody else. And so, I mean, I mean, if you look across, the, like, just in terms of, like, if fans were just focused on performance, there's lots of reasons to dislike Dan Snyder, I think. But if you're just focused on performance, there's a lot of teams in football sure. that have never, Well, but it's not even know, never winning. It's just, like, in the cellar year after year. This is a terrific yeah. question. Why yeah. is, Ownership matters so much in professional sports. There does seem to be differences across the sports. It's a big topic. We're going to take it up on another day because we've got some basketball over the next half hour. We have... Tom Haberstro joining us. Tom is a longtime writer at ESPN. Um, now he is with Bleacher Report. He also hosts the podcast Count the Dings. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Tom, where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, my home in Charlotte, North Carolina, the, the home of now uh, James Borrego, the head coach of the Charlotte Hornets and the new GM Mitch Kupchak, who is a UNC grad. And, uh, you know, it seems like uh, me as a Wake Forest guy, I'm kind of an outsider now with uh, with all the UNC everywhere. And, you know, Michael Jordan is the owner. Right. It's a pretty scary place right now. <laughs> the, the Hornets haven't been terrifically relevant for a while, have they? And who do you blame for that? Yeah, well, it's tough. I mean, Rich Cho was let go earlier this season, the GM of the Charlotte Hornets. And it's been a tough tough go around Kemba Walker who since November has more threes than any other player in the NBA um, that is of course a regular season stat but you know he's a special player it's just they don't have that many dynamic players around him um, and what you get into is what the Memphis Grizzlies fell into and what the New Orleans Pelicans did a few years ago is capping out with um, a small market team because you can't attract a lot of free agents to your city memphis and new orleans and charlotte are three of the smallest markets in the league and they kind of have to overpay for talent um, in-house because they can't afford to attract talent coming in Um, so what you end up doing is hamstringing your your cap space long term and you just you end up being pretty mediocre of course if you have a guy like anthony davis that tends to help yeah, right. He's a he's a franchise saver. But what about the ownership? We were just talking about quality of ownership in the NFL, and we know it varies some in basketball, even though I'd put basketball ownership way above the NFL ownership. Michael Jordan was obviously a transcendent basketball player, and those of us who are from that generation are going to probably forever take him as the greatest. But 
you know, he may not be he may not be the best owner in the world. What what has been the experience down there? I mean, we'll, we'll grant you the small market handicap, but still, I mean, we have we have some teams being smart out of small markets. Well, the fascinating thing here is Michael Jordan is my, maybe the most iconic player, not just from a basketball perspective, from a business perspective. The Jordan brand reigns supreme. Right. And yet that isn't enough to attract free agents. You know, you'd think that the draw of playing for Michael Jordan and being associated with that brand would be paramount to just about anything. I mean, yes, it doesn't have the Miami beaches or the or Hollywood nightlife. But you'd think that it would draw free agents uh, a little bit more than than it has, and I think he's a tough he's a tough boss. He's a really tough owner, um, and he spends a lot of time in Florida playing golf, and so he's not the most <laughs> present of owners. But I will say this: you know, I've I've heard a couple GMs or, or basketball ops people who have turned down the Charlotte job because of that fact that they don't. Um, think it's it's the best job in the world because of working for a guy like Michael Jordan is so demanding and it's it's difficult you know walking into the office and and seeing Michael Jordan um, and that that's difficult it's a difficult proposition because you know it's one thing to walk up to a, a tech guy um, or a businessman and just say I know basketball better than you do let me take control here it's another thing when it's Michael Jordan sitting across the desk. Right, so right. it's a difficult job, and I think that reflects um, the kind of struggles they've had ever since he's taken over. And the same thing with Washington Wizards when he was there. Right. It was very difficult um, with Michael Jordan as, as a decision maker. Right. So, Tom, we want to hear about the work you're doing now, but we want to hear a little bit about how you got there. You, you went to Wake, you've already mentioned, as an undergrad, and then from there to ESPN. Where did you get into basketball analytics? I mean, obviously ACC is, a, is kind of a hotbed of college hoops. And then how did you evolve from your ESPN gig to what you're doing now? Well, how much, how much time you got? No. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a wild ride. I mean, I, I actually was trying to get into finance um, and economics. I was an economics major at Wake Forest. I was going into finance. Um, and then the market collapsed. Um, I was graduating in 2008, Ooh, and just about every job I, yeah, not a great timing. Um, I, just about every job I applied for, they just weren't interviewing uh, because there were no jobs to be had. So I had to pivot and go into sports statistics um, on a whim. I was like, you know what? I love sports. I'm really good with numbers, and I feel like this is my passion. Let's see if I can make a career out of it. So I threw my resume over at ESPN and worked at their sports um, analytics and uh, sports that's an analysis group mm-hmm. for $12 an hour. Oh, and goodness. I just worked worked my way up through the chain at ESPN doing analytics and sabermetrics on the baseball side. Mm-hmm. And then the line was really short on the basketball side. So I said, you know what? I'm going to try this whole basketball thing, and here I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did you decide to leave ESPN? Well, I, I had a really great opportunity with Bleacher Report um, and just to spread, spread my wings a little bit more with uh, the podcast group that I have now with Count the Dings, um, just a little bit more flexibility and ability to kind of take ownership over my career. So, um, you know, it's ESPN was unbelievable for my career. Uh, I loved the people I worked with, um, but there was a big transition there over the past couple of years. And things had changed, and I just kind of decided, you know, if I'm going to leave, um, I want to, I want to try something different. Um, and so I did in October, and it's been great at Bleacher Report and Count the Dings. Mm-hmm. So give us an example of recent work that you've done for, for you know, for example, we've seen the Steph Curry 
work on what makes him so good. He's been out for a while. We all miss him, but he's back now. What, what do you think, what have you learned from your analysis of, of his play? He's really good. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's, uh, you know, the thing about Steph Curry is people focus on the shot because that's the most tangible thing you can, you can notice when, when watching him play basketball. But the thing that's, that gets uh, sports scientists and trainers and coaches just jaw-dropping all over the place is his movement. He is so fluid, um, and his handle is incredible. His peripheral vision is incredible. Um, and that's why this MCL sprain is so critical to his overall play because the MCL, for those who don't know, is a ligament that stabilizes and supports your knee during lateral movements. Mm-hmm. And that is such a key to Steph Curry's um, his, his game. You know, I, I remember a couple years ago against Kawhi Leonard, he put him on skates in the corner because of the sidestep move that he, he uses to create space where he just moves horizontally in ways that we haven't seen in the NBA in the NBA before, um, where he just steps into his shot laterally, which is very bizarre. Right. It's so hard to do. But, you know, Steph Curry is, is – he uses strobe light glasses in the offseason to slow the game down so his brain has to fill in the gaps and time seems to slow down. Kawhi Leonard used to use these. Michael Jordan used to use these. Um, and you just – Steph uses all. Oh, hold on, hold on. This hold is on, news Tom. to all of us. Hold yeah. on, yeah. So, <laughs> tell us a little bit more about this strobe light training. Okay, slo- strobe light training. I wrote this story for ESPN last year. Is um, you wear these goggles and you do ball handling drills, and the goggles kind of flicker um, a black screen, so it kind of inhibits your vision. Mm-hmm. So your brain is is forced to fill in the gaps. Like it, you're you're taking information away from your um, your sensory uh, machine in your brain, and you're trying to have your brain go in overdrive to fill in the gaps, so that when you take the goggles off, the world seems to be moving in slow motion. You're noticing things much better. Everything seems clearer because it's like a muscle, like you, you, you overload your muscles so it becomes stronger and sharper. In the same way, they use these strobe-like glasses. Uh, Kawhi Leonard used them a couple years ago in the offseason during his ball handling drills and his shooting drills. And it's just another layer of these guys. They're, the margins are so slim. The difference between winning MVP of James Harden, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, LeBron James, you're splitting hairs, right? Yeah. And so they're trying to find every edge they can. Steph Curry uses these goggles and a lot of his off-season workouts to try to make the game slow down. And that's why when you watch him, he seems to be one millisecond quicker than just about everybody else, and he needs that speed right. to get his shot off against seven-footers who are trying to right. block him, and, and it's amazing to watch. Tom, hold on. One more thing on this on this strobe light training or strobe goggles training. You know, as you said, the, the margins are so thin. Everyone's looking for an edge. I'm always surprised when I hear of a technology like this that it doesn't once once somebody like Steph Curry is using it that it doesn't completely you know take, take over the over, league. Yeah. Why is yeah. why isn't everyone using this thing all the time? It's the same with um with uh, with virtual reality training for quarterbacks. And we you know the thing blew up a few years ago where some guys out of Stanford create this organization and now they're giving quarterbacks reps that they never could have gotten yes, before. Yeah, I don't know why it, I don't know why everybody yeah. didn't instantly buy this technology. I mean, how is it that the, everyone is in search of an edge? Here's this thing. 
why are we just now hearing of it? Why are you naming three players in the league who have used it instead of, you know, 400? Well, maybe there are 400 and they just don't want to tell anybody because mm-hmm. a lot of the competitive advantage is not knowing what everyone is, what when they know, not everyone not knowing what you're doing. And mm-hmm. so I think, yes, it is possible that um, only three players are using this kind of technology. But I also think that players and teams are super tight-lipped about the training that they do so that they keep that advantage. And I think as soon as they like reveal to the world, hey, I'm using this special nutri- um, diet or I'm using this special training or these goggles or what have you, um, maybe that's part of the whole competitive advantage in this, this you know, dog-eat-dog world where they just do not want to reveal any of their trade secrets. So right. um, I think there's an element of that. And also, um, it's, it's awkward. I think there is a, an uncool element to this where you're putting on goggles or VR goggles. It seems alien to the natural sure. you know, sport. Um, so I think there is a little bit of awkwardness with the technology. And to be honest, you know, some of this technology isn't totally vetted yet. So <laughs> there is right. that. Yes. Scientifically, you're like, wait, this seems kind of like junk science to me. You know, so there's Tom, a lot of that, too. This yeah. is this is Adi Weiner. I'm really intrigued by this. I actually think that your latter hypothesis is probably the stronger <laughs> one. I think that a lot of athletes are really resistant to do things new, and that the um, that I think would guess that there are very few using the strobe lights, and not many. I mean, and I just the only context that I have is that you see so many basketball players miss so many free throws when we all know, and I knew where I'm going. That this is you, a different thing. Uh, no, different they just thing. it's just not willing to try things that are just not what what people do. It's just not are we going part to the of Rick the game. Barry Graham rem- yes. Yeah. Is this where we're going? That's well, I'm not going with. It. I'm just. I just don't think that athletes <laughs> are willing Adi, to Adi, do Adi's this. dream is that everybody shoots their free throws. Uh, well, that's how I do it, and that's how you get them done. <laughs> that's absolutely the case. It's the only way to go. You know. And we were talking. I was talking. You know. Uh, you have written about water. Is that something that that you wrote about? And this seems to be, you know, these these crazy diets are just uh, unproven stuff. That yeah, but it people... kind of goes the other way. It's never stopped people from adopting. Lack of scientific vetting is going to no, stop people from adopting. But it's it's not. I don't think. But the, this something that works. I think people will. If it, I mean, I don't think they're going to keep it secret. I think that you're just not going to get many people using it. Well, tell us about the water thing. So, you, 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 Sam Hinkie apparently did analysis, or his team did, his crew did when he was here with the Sixers, and and you followed up on it with an article about water consumption in the NBA. What's that all about? Yeah, so uh, it, it was really fascinating to see. Like, you walk into the locker room, and LeBron James is drinking out of a uh, a water bottle taped up. Uh, like it's like state secrets of like what kind of water he's drinking. And I'm like, what is going on here? Why can't he reveal what kind of water he's drinking? Like, why is it so top secret? And the reason is because, you know, the NBA has all these business relationships with different water companies. And if you drink one and and at a press conference and Gatorade's going to get upset or Dasani's going to get upset. And then the more I started digging in, there's so much more to this story because water is – now has more sales nationwide than soda. For the first time in in U.S. history, Mm -hmm. more people are buying bottled water than soda. And it's just this kind of seismic shift across the country where people are obsessed with bottled water. And NBA players are crazy about it. Some NBA players, even Antoine Jameson, loved Fiji water so much that he would write Fiji on his shoes in giant letters. And every time he hit a jumper with the Washington Wizards, He'd scream Fiji, and it was, just, it was almost 
this it's almost it's you know baseball players are as superstitious as you can ever yes. like any human yeah. being they're super superstitious right NBA players are just like that but it's a little bit more subtle um, NBA players are really loyal to different types of bottled water and there's this one bottled water that the Philadelphia 76ers use which is called Essentia alkaline water and alkaline water is all the rage in Hollywood and, and fitness circles but the science doesn't really back it up. The idea of alkaline water is that it, it, it uh, reduces the acidity in your body uh, because you, you eat so much acidic foods and it's not good for your inflammation, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the science doesn't really back it up. Alkaline water mostly is junk science. But the fascinating thing that um, you know, trainers told me is the placebo effect is so powerful oh, with athletes, especially pro athletes, that if they think it's better for them, that of course the key to their success. So they it's might Dumbo's feather harder, might run harder <laughs> if they believe that this water is giving them supernatural powers. Then they actually will work harder and try to play harder and, and be better out on the court if they think they have this you know this this like PED in their system for lack of a better term. Like this water, um, in many ways, is giving them an edge, a psychological edge, more so than a that, that's fascinating, and we and we we have to take those kinds of things seriously. Placebo effects are, are very real, and you find a reliable placebo effect, and, and you and you go with it essentially. And it also speaks to the power of um, psychology in performance. I mean, my gosh, um, very very interesting. Can we talk about the current series that we're seeing? Of course, we not quite to the semis yet. We've got a three one series out here in the East with our local team. We were talking about the Sixers and Celtics at the top of the show. And and one of us was was hypothesizing that they're just not very good, and so we're curious for a more objective, sophisticated take from you, Tom. What's what's your perspective on what's going, what has gone on with the Sixers, and what's going on with them in this series against the Celtics? Well, I think they're just, you know, this is a make or miss league, and they haven't gotten hot from three point land. I think a lot of that has to do with the transition game with Ben Simmons. He hasn't able to get out in transition because the Boston Celtics have really thwarted that by getting back on defense and, and Brad Stevens does a heck of a job game planning against this team. But look, they, they haven't really gotten hot from three point land. And that's such a huge critical part of their game. Cause there's such a ball movement, heavy team. They, they get everyone active. Um, and the issue is they haven't gotten enough creation from Ben Simmons to really take advantage of their shooters. You know, Marco Bellinelli, JJ Redick, they haven't gotten, on fire yet, and especially in the last game, they won despite shooting 29% from three. Um, and so I actually think this is going to go seven. I think this Wow. Um, because I do believe that they're going to cast fire either tonight or the next game because it just the law of averages, I feel like at some point they're going to actually shoot well from downtown. Ben Simmons has had really tough time, you know, uh, putting his imprint on this series. And I think you're going to see, you know, J.J. Redick and Marco Bellinelli and Robert Covington – they're gonna get they're gonna get hot at some point. Whether it's gonna be too late um, in two games, that, that that might be too late because they right. might lose tonight. But I think ultimately Brad Stevens done an amazing job stopping this team in transition, and that's really where Ben Simmons excels. Have you done any work on coaching effects, or do you know of good work on coaching effects in the NBA? Everyone's talking about Stevens, of course, now and then because maybe because Brett Brown is in a series against him. He's not looking quite as good by comparison. Is there good work out there and good methodologies for sussing out the impact a coach can have in the NBA? It really isn't. I mean, the, the, I used to do some work on um, 
you know, over-unders, preseason over-unders, because that seems to be like the best barometer of whether coaches outperform expectations, because I, I think that's really what coaching is all about, right? Is getting more out, you know, the size of, a, of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And I think that is coaching. But at the end of the day, you know, some media members, you know, voting on what the over-unders should be in the, in the preseason, maybe those expectations are wrong. Like maybe they're, we're just dumb. Um, maybe Vegas is putting the over-unders uh, at nor- you know, artificially high or low just to get more bets. So it's hard to grade, you know, coaches exceeding expectations. Um, and I think Brad Stevens does that. I think he absolutely gets the most out of his players. It's just hard to judge that on a wide scale. Like you said, the methodologies aren't perfect. But I think that's where you got to start is, you know, exceeding expectations and having the whole greater than some of its parts. We're talking to Tom Haberstrow. Tom is the co-founder of Leverage the Chat. He also hosts the Count the Deans podcast. He was with ESPN for seven years and now with the Bleacher Report platform out of Wake Forest and um, longtime basketball analyst at this point. Yeah, Tom, I just, this is Eric Bradley. I just wanted to ask you, so a lot of people have said, you're right, it's very hard to measure coaching effects, but what about performance in close games? What about performance, you know, when the game is tied with a certain amount of time left? I mean, actually, I'm pretty sure if you look at the Celtics records in close games, I mean, conditional it's being tied with three or four minutes left. Have you seen the types of analyses there that he wins an inordinate, or any coach wins an inordinate amount of games where all other factors have been equalized at a certain time left in the game? Yeah, it's funny you mention that because when Isaiah Thomas was traded for Kyrie Irving, I had talked to a Celtics uh, exec and I said, you know, I think this team might be worse next year simply because they exceeded expectations in crunch time last year. Like I say to Thomas and the Boston Celtics were exceedingly good um, in crunch time and clutch right. situations last year. And I just thought that Pythagorean win loss was way, way lower than what they should have been. Um, and so or the other way around, but anyway, so I asked, I asked him like maybe next year it's going to come back to, to normal and it's going to be a disappointing year. And he said to me, yeah, that is if you don't think that we have the clutch gene. And I laughed, and he laughed, and I was like, you're kidding, right? And he's like, no, I, I think there might be something to Brad Stevens and his ability to win in clutch scenarios. And guess what happened this year? Same deal. Right. The Boston Celtics seemed to outperform what you would expect um, in those situations. And I, I, there isn't there isn't a good test for whether their clutch is real in the NBA or if coaches have clutch abilities but I do think that Brad Stevens and his ability to defend and thwart, um, you know, actions, I think that might be the secret, is if you've studied the game film enough to know and be able to predict what the other team is going to run and sniff it out, maybe that's the secret. It's different than in baseball where it's one-on-one. Um, I think in basketball, I think that's the key is can you thwart actions and force the teams to do what they don't want to do out of timeouts, and I think Brad Stevens is a genius on that front. Yeah, Tom, I wanted to follow up with that, and it actually related, when you mentioned you're in Charlotte and Kemba Walker, it made me think of the the theorem I have for playoff basketball, and I talked about it in the first half hour of the show, but I wanted to get your opinion on this. I've always said, um, if we believe that Joel Embiid is either the best player in the six, or certainly the top two, but maybe the best offensive player right now with Simmons' limitations, Whenever the best player in your team is your center, I'm convinced, because I'm a pained New York Knicks fan from childhood while watching Patrick Ewing for 15 years, similarly in Game 3 of the Sixers-Celtics, you can't get your center the ball 
in the end of the game. You, it has to be the Michael Jordan, the Kemba Walker, the Chris Paul, the James Harden, the Steph Curry, the person, the Kevin Durant. The person has the ball in their hand. It doesn't take four passes and 18 seconds of the shot clock to get them the ball. What's your theory about building a franchise in the NBA today around a center who requires 15 seconds and four passes to get him the ball? <laughs> it does sound like you were a tortured Knicks fan. Um, yeah, so I think this is really interesting. Um, I think the one counter I would have about Joel Embiid is that he has a lot more skill on the block and, the, and just in general than Patrick Ewing did. I think just he can play the guard position. You know, He's got handles. He's got a three-point shot. And so it's not so much that you have to depend on him getting the, the ball on the block. He could get it on the elbow. He can get on the three-point line and run some weird actions from there. But I think that is super important is the unpredictability of your star player. Like, you know, the idea is you want to throw plays that the other team can't scout and the other team can't, um, you know, play against. And I think Joel Embiid is so, so versatile and he has so much skill that it, it, you don't have to just dump it down in the post and try to get that entry pass like, you know, traditional centers in the past. But I do think that having Ben Simmons without a three-point shot or without a confident jumper, uh, that limits you down the stretch. And they just don't have a guy who can create something out of nothing on the perimeter. J.J. Redick and Rocco, uh, you know, T.J. McConnell has limitations. There's just a lot of guys on that team that require someone else to create for them. And I think that's the issue with the Philadelphia 76ers. I do think it might be a little overblown here in the first four games of the series, but I think until Markel Fultz develops um, and just kind of, you know, gets gets his confidence back out there, I think they're going to struggle to create shots in the half court as well as they do in the transition. Well, speaking of guys who can create on their own, what is your take on what's going to happen out West? Now that we finally are to this conference final that we've been expecting all season, what do you make of the Warriors-Rocket series? Oh, man, it's, it's going to – I think it's the finals. I think it's the NBA finals. In my book, I know it's not going to go down in the history books as the finals, but these are the two best teams in the NBA. I think we've known that for a very long time. Um, and even if LeBron gets there in the finals, I don't think this Cavs team as a team – is anywhere near as good as as Golden State and, and the Houston Rockets? But how does how does this Golden State team compare to the last two years of Golden State? Um, well, they have seemingly figured out that Iguodala, the Hamptons five lineup, is their best go-to lineup, and they should probably ditch Zaza Pachulia as their starting center. Uh, the last couple of games, they've gone to the Hamptons five lineup with just a lot of versatility. Zaza Pachulia being the center hasn't really worked out. This season, um, you know, in 414 minutes, they were plus 74 on the season with Zaza Pachulia on the floor next to Draymond, Clay, KD, and Steph. And that's not a great number. Plus mm-hmm. 74 with four basically all-stars, that's not great. Over 414 minutes, that's not good. So they've made the switch. Right now, Iguodala next to that, that big four is plus 54 in 54 minutes. That's it. 54 mm-hmm. minutes they've outscored opponents this postseason in, by, in, uh, by 54 points. I think that's the big difference between this year and the last couple of years is they've really gone out and said, instead of holding this lineup, the death lineup they used to call it, we're going to play it right out the start and blow you out of the gym from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be really interesting in this series is they're not trying to hold that card anymore. They're going to try to punch you in the face from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Do you give the Rockets much of a chance? They, they, they have some incredible talent at the top, essentially, 
but they don't have the they don't go four and five deep like the Warriors do. What 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 do you make of their chances? Yeah, I think it's going to go six. I think uh, I have Warriors and six in this series, and uh, you know I could totally see this going seven or even the Houston Rockets winning. And I think you hit it right on the head. Is it's just too much star power. I mean, you saw with the Toronto Raptors, what matters is how good is your best player. And right now, the Warriors have two MVP candidates on their team. And yes, Chris Paul is super good, um, but he's undersized. And I think in the, in the playoffs, that can be a little bit lim- more limiting than, say, in the regular season. Chris Paul was unbelievable last night. I mean, watching him play with confidence in the fourth quarter, just burying um, the Utah Jazz was a sight to see. 41 points, 10 assists, and in most Chris Paul fashion, zero turnovers. Uh, it, it really is going to be an amazing series to watch. But I will say I want to see who Steph Curry guards in this upcoming season uh, series because he's not going to guard James Harden uh, or Chris Paul full-time because he's going to get really, really tired. He's going to get run down in the mm-hmm. same way that the Cavs tried to exploit him uh, two years ago coming back from the MCL injury. So mm-hmm. if you want to learn more about that, go check out Bleacher Report, uh, search my name, and go read about Steph Curry being back. Uh, with this MCL injury, because that's a big question mark, is how much energy will he have offensively if he has to guard Chris Paul or Eric Gordon or James Harden? Because that's the that's the, that's the ticket. If you're going to beat the Warriors, you got to grind down Steph. And right now, he's playing pretty well. He looks okay. He doesn't look great. But I think most teams, when you go against the Warriors, you have to find a way to, to run grind down Steph Curry on defense and exploit that so he doesn't have the energy or the or the just the the um, the uh, the force on the front on the offensive end uh, to do what he does best. Right. Well, you've given us a good thing to keep an eye on as that series unfolds, and perhaps one of the keys to that series. So we we, we appreciate that, Tom. We're going to let you go. Thank you again for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. That was Tom Haberstroh. Tom is co-founder of Leverage the Chat. He also hosts the podcast Count the Dings. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Haberstroh. Haberstroh is H-A-B-E-R-S-T-R-O-H. Tom calling in this morning from Charlotte, North Carolina. That is three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Dion Simpkins on the soundboard this morning. Associate producer Dion Simpkins. Oh, it's a delight to have Dion around here. Bringing us out of the bottom of the hour into the last quarter of the show. This is Cade Massey hosting Wharton Moneyball this morning with the whole crew. Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow. Just off the phone with Tom Haberstroh talking basketball analytics. Rolling into the last half hour. Open lines here. You can join the conversation. 1-844-WHARTON. 1-844-942-7866. Email us. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or add us. At W Moneyball is the handle on Twitter. You can send us questions. You can poke fun, whatever you'd like to do up there, or just follow. You can also give us over-unders. We'll wrap the show up here in a little bit with our over-under segment. Between now and then, a few sports to check in on, guys. I understand they played a baseball game in the American League East last night. They did. They did. Didn't go so well. Well, I mean, it was actually a great game, but yeah. So your teams are now tied after yeah. the Yanks run on, what, a 16-1 and run? Yeah. This is something, insane. Something stupid. Yeah, well, they were 9-9. Nine and nine. Yeah, nine and nine to sixteen and one gets you to twenty five and ten. Wow! So this is, I think, the best. I mean, I think 17 the Red Sox started out something like you yeah, know, they, sixteen and two or something like yeah, that. Right. Well. So they kind That's of correct. flipped basically. But yeah. I read that this was the best seventeen game. Of course, you cherry pick the length of games, but best seventeen game streak since nineteen fifty four for the Yankees. 
I mean, for it's the not, Yankees, it's not here. nothing. Okay, so they played this game last night. I saw the dings by Stanton. Yeah, yeah. Those Stanton were, just those tossed out impressive. two. One into the opposite field, like 112 miles like an hour. Little, it was a little slap. It was <laughs> like a little a cricket. It was like a little <laughs> cricket shot. Yeah, 112 miles an hour. And the other one to left was like this complete line drive. He he yeah. just I almost came, came over the top of the thing. So the that guy, gives Yankees. Uh, their big four have col- combined for almost 40 home runs. Remind us who the, the judge well, the and Stanton. the big three are Judge Stanton and, and Sanchez. They're the big three. Okay. Gregorius yeah. has 10. Yeah. Um, but the whole league is just going out of their minds with home runs. Yeah. And, and home runners, strikeouts. And strikeouts, apparently. Home runs and strikeouts, well, exactly. Well, and no hitters in particular. So we're going to talk. We're going to come back to that. But yeah. there there were a couple of no hitters recently, and, and they seem to be on the uptick this year. They bounce around a fair bit year to year, but this seems to be a no hitter kind of year. But where are you now, if you were going to pick the AL East race with these two juggernauts tied? Flip a coin. Coin toss from Shane. It's hard to bet against your own team. Um, but I think it's going to be a, a wonderfully intense season. I mean, the game last night was a, was a fabulous game. The lead changed, well, at least it went from tied a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. It was certainly close at the end. There were mm-hmm. lots of runners on. There was great, exciting pitching. Um, it was about as good as you can watch a baseball game, I think. Of course, I'm particularly fond <laughs> of the result. I think Eric would agree. <laughs> yeah, so the thing I don't know about the Red Sox as well as I know about the Yankees is that um, when I look at, forget just home runs, when I look at the, I'll call it the slugging percentage opportunities for the Yankees. It just seems immense. Just yeah. top to bottom of the lineup. To the Red Sox, I mean, we all agree Mookie Betts is an unbelievable baseball player. Do they have that same, I'll call it seven or eight guys that could end up with an ops like 900 and above? I don't that think the Yankees they're quite do? the slugging. Like, they're not these big kind of, I mean, I guess the Yankees I think fit more the prototype for this new era of home right. runner strikeout type thing. I think the Red Sox don't fit that mold as well. They have a little bit more speed, though they do have several sluggers. Um, I think uh, the Red Sox might kind of have an advantage over the Yankees slightly in terms of starting pitching and the depth of kind of that rotation, though, I mean, with David Price perhaps injured now, maybe that goes away a little bit. Um, no, I mean, I, th- I, th- I don't think anybody has what the Yankees have as far as those, like, home run hitters, like, five or six of them in a row. So in service to the rest of the country, let's at least acknowledge what else is going on. So, for example, the next two best records. So the Yanks and the Red Sox have the best. They're tied for the best record in baseball. The next two best. One team, not surprising, the Houston Astros. But the other, the second best, the third best, because the first two are tied, the Arizona Diamondbacks. What's going on with the Diamondbacks? They're leading the NL West. And that's that's obviously a surprise. I don't know what you guys think about their ability to maintain that. Um, I don't know what your guys' ability well, is to name some Diamondbacks. But. <laughs> yeah, I watched the series. Uh, uh, they played against the Phillies. Didn't we just, see that they, game? We, we, they were we completely did. Crushed, they crushed the Phillies. The Phillies. Yeah, right. they crushed and the, the Phillies. Phillies are also a Phillies surprise. Phillies are very yep. big surprise. No one, no yep. one predicted this. I mean, they're getting lots of good hitting. But, and you know, at some point, though, I, I know it's you know it's only 35 games into the season, but let's stay with Cade's point about the Diamondbacks. They're 24 and 11. The Dodgers, maybe big payroll, one, the largest payroll in baseball. Them are the Red Sox, were the favorites to start yeah. the year. The Dodgers are nine games back. Yeah. So you know, I'm not saying there are plenty of games to go, and that maybe the Diamondbacks play 400 ball the rest of the season. Maybe that happens. But you know, at some point, you start doing math of you're almost 10 games back. You know, we have to play. 600 ball, if they play 500 ball, they've been playing yeah. 400 ball, why do we think they're going to play 600 ball? And, okay. and especially with LA having so many injuries, I mean, they've just had kind of, 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 of catastrophically unlucky year. Seager, they're, they're in trouble. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, you know, they yeah. haven't had any uh, Turner of Turner Turner services all season. The other thing yep. I noticed, which uh, it relates to Cade, your point earlier, which is when you look at the Yankees and the Red Sox at twenty five and ten, which is obviously they're both playing over seven hundred baseball. Um, you start to say to yourself, well, the good thing about baseball and every sport is that in team sports that there's a winner and a loser. So the average has that up <laughs> to five hundred. Unless you're so soccer. Given that they're well, let's forget ties for a second. So given that you are adding up to five hundred. Someone has to be accumulating all these losses. So when I was starting to look at the standings last night, first of all, we have an entire division, the AL Central, with nobody above 500. That was the one thing. That was the first thing I noticed. The second thing I noticed is 18 out of the uh, 30 teams. It's not much above 500, but it is 18 of the 30 teams have a winning record. So that means it's not 15 and 15, which would be on average. It's 18 and 12. And if the season ended with 18 teams with a winning record and 12 with losing, that would be pretty abnormal. The other thing is we have an all-time, if the pace continues, I mean, the Cincinnati Reds are 9 and 27. They're playing 250 ball. That takes you to 40 and 120 for the entire season, which would be like 62 Mets Awfully bad. What's the, what's right. the what's, what? The they were the, they're win. the worst. That is the worst. There's a forty. Yeah, forty. Forty or forty-one. The, uh, I just, just don't remember. Context, Wasn't there like a Tigers team like in the last the, twenty years that came really close to that? I got maybe in the fifties. Yeah. Not, not no. The baseball not analytics people like to reference everything with respect to replacement level players. This is the whole concept of war wins above replacement, and they forecast a replacement level team. This is just the free the free pickups. We'd win about forty-seven to forty-nine games, depending oh on how you no how kidding. you estimate. They should do yeah, an well. expansion draft. They should collapse <laughs> one of the teams, do an expansion draft. Okay, just kind of resort it. Three other quick hitters: two backward-looking, one forward-looking. Did you pay any attention to the derby? We had our usual derby guest on last week. Great well, conversation, you know, but then it kind of went to hell. It's interesting the muck, because right? one, of th- one of the things that Jeff Cedar talked about was the muck was going to make it hard to forecast. But interestingly, and I'll, I'll turn it to you, Eric, in a minute. The money all went on Justify. They started yep. off at three to one. They ended up at five to two. So the way it works in horse racing is you don't get the odds you buy at when you buy it in the beginning. It's not like a, a sports book, right? Uh, you you get the 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 odds that that the money um, uh, distributes at the end. So people kept betting on Justify, and of course Justify won. So I thought it was actually a bad bet, but Eric thinks no. Well, no, no. Here's what I thought would happen. I, I did think the money would come on to Justify, but I also thought people, everyone was talking about it. It was heavy rain conditions, muddy conditions. It was the second muddiest ever or yeah, something right. like that. And also, let me just say, the winning time was a slow it was time. Slow, of course. It was a yeah. slow time, which is not surprising. I just felt that people were, you know, in some sense... If the best horse is the best horse, like, I, you know, I know people, I don't follow horse racing that much. People say, this horse is a mutter, not a mutter. I thought people would put overweight this mud situation. In some sense, under ideal conditions, people, everybody was saying Justify was the best horse. Now it's raining and muddy. Now all of a sudden, how much effect, you know, I'm an effect size guy. How much is the mutter effect compared to his better than just everybody else. That's the way I looked at it. It's like, if this horse is the best, there's an effect be of the rain, but the why rain would it be... Di- why is there this massive interaction effect? Like, this horse is so much well, more effective noise. by the... It just makes it noisy. It's noisy. No, no, I understand, but I didn't think it no, added like, enough noise if the gap... It's, it's variance. 
That's what it adds. It doesn't change the ordering. It adds well, variance. Some people and there's might, 19 no, other horses no, I in this disagree. race. I disagree with you because it does add variance, but a lot of people would say it shifts the mean of certain horses versus others. It's not just that it adds uh, okay. variance. Some said this horse is a yeah, mutter, yeah, this we, horse isn't. We liked the variance one. In fact, that was the last thing we ended up with with Cedar last week was he was like, yeah, well, nah, well, just that look, can happen. Anything you know, can happen. Yeah. I think you would have argued against He Justify. also didn't seem to go crazy on Justify. He said it was obviously the, the favorite. Yeah, it wasn't but, like some of these years where I mean, look, the, the favorite has won six years in a row, so that's a pretty big deal. But some of these years, it's just been, you know, I think we've had people who were even on, right. on favorite. But right? can they, we they can were, we say something though? It's not. I'm not going to talk about it, you know uh, momentum or streaks or anything like that. Maybe the prediction, as as Jeff Cedar has said for years, maybe the prediction abilities are improving in horse racing. That's why we're seeing the favorite win six years in a row. It might not be because the gap is changing between you know, like the right tail, the distributions moving out farther. Maybe it is. That's one possibility. Another is just we're getting better. We're, we're, not, yeah. we're getting better. I'm Analytics skeptical. is getting better. I'm, I'm skeptical. skeptical. Listen, 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 it is a nice story. Let's go it's backwards. Um, uh, before American Pharaoh won the Triple Crown, there were something like 15 to 20 possible Triple Crown winners that were favorites going into the, the final, which is the Belmont Stakes, and did not win. Yeah. So it seemed as if the analytics were falling apart, or not the analytics, but the public um, yeah. um, perspective was, was falling apart on that score, but then we're getting favorites winning on the, right, in the first round. Right, right. All right, speaking of favorites, a multiple Champions League winner Madrid is through to the finals again. Joined by Liverpool, who clinched last week, and they'll play a one-game winner-take-all in Kiev uh, in just a couple of you weeks. Know, That's I, Memorial I'll, Day weekend. Yeah, I'll let you guys talk about the actual sport, but one inf- piece of information that Matty Datz tossed us was the cost of a ticket. Oh, my gosh. Just to show you how insanely popular soccer is relative to the sports. You want to go to the Champions League final in Kiev over Memorial Day weekend. You have to what pay. What was the cost? He said the starting tickets were like 12000 or something. This is not the average ticket price. This is the starting ticket price in Kiev, twelve five, twelve five, And something like 320 million people are going to watch on TV. That's right. But, so what is it, as a background, what does a, a Super Bowl ticket cost now? Oh, you can get in for a, that. You can get for you, stuff. You can get in for a thousand for sure. Oh, for a thousand for sure, you can get in. I mean, I mean, the actual price on the tickets like five hundred. No, yeah, no, I don't mean that. I mean, I mean, what would it yeah. cost? A thousand dollars. If I'm willing to yeah. sit in the upper deck, whatever, yeah. I can get into the Super Bowl for a thousand. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a very talk different. about the ratio. Unbelievable. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's fun for Liverpool as well. We have a lot of fans around. Some good buddies who are Liverpool guys. Our producer Matty Dats is a Liverpool guy, so they're hoping. What blows me away about this Champions League setup is that they're still playing their regular league, and so. They qualify they for the, it in. They qualify mm. for the final on Wednesday, and then they have to go play a game on Saturday morning, yeah. which they lose, by the way. And now they're like teetering on brink of elimination for Champions League qualifying next year. But it's just amazing to me that they're going it's back a cool and forth. System, it is a, it's a very interesting system. So we got a couple of weeks to warm up to that one. Um, one sport, one event to look forward to is the players this weekend in golf. So used to Eric, is it still qualify? It's kind of the fifth major. Yes. So TPCs, the Sawgrass Course. Um, down there, and um, this is you know one of the bigger tournaments of the year. Anything interesting, Eric? Well, the most ex- I mean, for me, the most interesting part is it's for, it's only the I think it's the we count it's the thirty third or thirty fourth time in their career they've intentionally they get to pick. This is different. They the uh, organizers of the tournament get to pick who plays with each other in the first round. So the first round they've paired Tiger Woods with Phil Mickelson. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I should mention the third person is this guy called Ricky Fowler, who also happens <laughs> to be playing with them. So let's not Jeez. and by the way, it's Ricky Fowler. The part that's interesting, they obviously put up the stats. They've played together, let's say I think it's thirty two times. 
Mickelson has the better score, 15 rounds. Tiger Woods, 14 rounds. And they've tied three rounds. So what I found interesting is I'm pretty sure if you did the pairwise comparison of Tiger Woods with maybe even any other player he played more than 10 rounds with, Tiger Woods would have this massive advantage. Phil Mickelson, I understand it's 500 basically, but Phil Mickelson has not been outplayed by yeah. Tiger Woods yeah, when they've played that. together. Interesting. So I'm extraordinarily interested to see them playing together. And it may be the last time where both of them playing together are, I don't say Decent. in their prime, but you know, have legitimate chances to win the yep. tournament. They're not in their prime. All right, turning into the home stretch, let's hit our final segment. It's Warden Moneyball's Over Under. Before we go to the Over Under segment, we want to take a clip from last week. At this point, we talked a little bit about no hitters in baseball. How many more no hitters between now and the end of the year? We're going to set the Over Under at one and a half. I'm actually going to take a bold position and go over. Okay. I don't know if that's bold, but I, I'm actually going to go over. And that's predicated on the on what I'm seeing, which is a lot of really extraordinary pitching. Yeah, and I mean, again, this sort of strikeout versus home run thing, I think and, it kind of lends itself to no-hitters. And we didn't qualify it as an individual pitcher no-hitter. It could be Ooh. just a team no-hitter. And How and many of those do we have? Those yeah, happen. Those they're happening more and more. They hmm. are rare, but the idea is that a guy has a no-hitter through the seventh, and you're just not adverse hmm. to just taking him out. All right, so how about that? A little, a little tooting of our own horn. I suppose it, it's not too bad because Adi calls out this multiple pitcher no hitter thing, and which then happened, it, and then it happened. Bam! So it's going to happen. Uh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen this, this week. Is it going to happen this week? Forget about the rest of the season. Together. It took one week. We now <laughs> had a no hitter last night. I mean, yes. we're already at two. Braxton, Braxton was the traditional kind. Yeah, um, except for Canadian on Canadian soil. Canadian soil, yeah. second yeah. Canadian ever, first time on Canadian soil. And the last pitch, the last two pitches of the game were at 199 miles per hour. Yeah, I saw in fact that he pitched his fastball was faster every three. What minutes. did you say? 100 comma 99. He means oh. not 199. 199. <laughs> I assume. He is apparently one of these guys who, when he's on, throws faster as he goes through. So he was he was almost two miles an hour faster in the last three innings than he right. was the first three innings. Uh, Nolan Ryan was the same way Yeah, when he pitched his seven no-hitters. So By, by the <laughs> way, the, we've had three no-hitters, and they've been on three different countries in North America because the, as the group, Mexico, the group huh? no-hitter was in Mexico. Mm. Eric, you want to guide us in the last few minutes on over-unders? All right, so let's continue on with baseball, to start with baseball. Um, this is something I'm glad uh, Matt Datz put it on our uh, sheet because this is something I was going to ask anyway. Let's start with the Red Sox and the Yankees. We've got over under 200 wins combined. And just to let you know, they're both on pace for 117 wins. But they do have to play each other 15 more times. So someone's got to lose those games and someone's going to win those games. So how would you do right now over under? I'll start with Shane Jensen, our baseball guy here, and Adi's baseball too. But Shane, I'll start with you. Over under 200 combined wins. Under. Definitely under. Definitely under. I wow. don't think. Yeah, they're not going to be. Damn, either. They're, they're going to beat damn, on. Damn. They're going to beat up on each other too much. Toronto's actually a very good team that's in their division as well. And I know this has happened in baseball history that you've had two teams from the same division go over 100 games. But I think you not not with the. Not the with the schedule. amount of, not with the current, uh, yeah, kind of unbalanced just, uh, schedule. Just to help you before you go, Kate, yeah. by the way, um, they each have 127 games left. If they play 600 baseball for those games, that gets them 75.2 more wins, which it, gets yeah. them to 100. So just to let you know, we'd yeah. have to make a prediction that they would both play 600 ball for the remaining of the season, yeah. which is obviously a 97-win pace, yeah. which, when averaged with their 117-win pace, gets them to 100. So, Kate, yeah. what do you think? I have, yeah, I'm just going to school on what you guys are saying. I have nothing to add here. 
Adi? Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm only disappointed because I agree with Shane, mm. and I was hoping for a little controversy. Yeah. Uh, also, I'll add in one more thing, and that is um, the American League in general has, the, is, has a lot of very good teams, and I think the, the American League East in particular, and so they'll be playing each other a lot. Yeah. And also, just priors. It's a very rare event, and so you just got to shrink back to and the unlikely... And I mean, what Base you would rate. need is a lot of really bad teams kind of essentially yes. contributing. And, yeah. and I, I will say that though, I was right about the Detroit Tigers. 2003, they lost 119 games. So they 40, only won 43. 43 and 119. Okay, so that's very close. I, by the way, I'm taking the over. All, All right. right. Hold, hold, I'll give you one thing. Fangraphs. This is how I would answer the question. I'd go to Fangraphs. Their projections... Yankees 100, Red Sox 99. Oh, so we're right there. Right on the number. Uh, I'll go. I'll take the over. Why not? Uh, let's now move on to basketball. Um, actually, we got a prediction from Tom Haverstrow, but let's get one from you guys. Two point five more games in the Sixers Celtics series. Does it go to Game Seven? That's the that's the over under. So I'll start with you, Kate. Does it go to Game Seven? I, I don't know how you can remember pick the Sixers that. are the favorite. The Sixers will be know, the favorite in every game. One and a half. I'll points. take odds and one, go for it. One and a half exactly. <laughs> yeah. One and a half points isn't much of an edge. So they're basically coin flips, and so you're requiring that you're, you're betting on a twenty five percent thing. So I'm, I'm going to go under. I would agree, even though I'm rooting for it. I mean, you need yeah. Just to be controversial, I'll say over. Why right. not? Why not? <laughs> and I'll only go over just because I want to go to Game Six. Yeah. We need a board the to fan, keep track need, of yeah. these things. My gosh. All right, how about let's keep going? Uh, five point five games in the Western Conference Finals. So just go to at least a Game Six. And just to remind everybody, I know you know this: the Rockets are the team with the home court. So the Rockets win at least two games in the series, or maybe you think they'll sweep the. Warriors, maybe you'll mm. think it goes the other way. So Shane, I'll start I, I, with you. I'll, I'll take I'll take the over on that. I think it'll be a long series. Long series. I, I agreed. And now I'm curious. What what do we? What's the expected? What's expected the probability number. if they're fifty fifty games? Let's just say they're all fifty fifty. Let's just call it that. What's the What's the likelihood that it goes to at least six? Uh, well, well, the mean is about four point five. I mean, five, the mean is around five, uh, five and a half. So if it's five, if with two with fifty percent games, so. I think it's right at it. Okay, so we're actually taking if we if, they, if they're really fifty fifty, then we're going slightly against the numbers to say it goes at least six games. I think it's I think it's I think here's how you could do the math. I'm just doing right, it. You guys right will correct me right quickly. Right at it. Yeah. Okay. If it's fifty fifty, let's just take one of the teams. The probability that they go all wins, right? Yeah, is one out of sixteen. The probability that they go four and one is five out of thirty two. So now we're at seven out That's of thirty-two. It's a lot of seven-game possibilities. So it's seven out of thirty-two would be that it goes all wins or one four wins with one loss interjected. So that would be seven out of thirty-two. I actually think for, it's more likely to be for uh, one of those sequences. More probability at the top. Definitely more probability. But at there's the top. more tail to the left, so the average dunks down below six. But I the see. Uh, but the I think more of the probability is at the top. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's where I'm going. So where well. are you guys? You're going over. I'm going over. You're going yeah. over. Yeah. And I'm going under. I think you've gotten the Warriors really angry, and oh. you're not going to like the Hulk. No you're not going to like me when I'm angry. Warriors. I'm okay. going under. Angry I, I like I like Warriors. I don't 4-1. know. The Haberstroh conversation leaves me skeptical about Curry's condition, and that's a player they can't afford yeah. not to have at top. Okay, maybe just the last one. Last one here. Let's since we're, it's, it's you know it's never too early to talk about football season, <laughs> and and we've got our two teams. Let's go Eagles ten point five wins over under, and let's go Patriots eleven point five wins over under. So I might as well start with Mr. Under, football. Un, un, Eagles under ten point five. Patriots over eleven point five. Oh, what a homer! Well, I mean. I, I, I guess I'm, I, I guess I'm throwing my hopes and dreams into this too. I don't know. Well, you also have to say who in the AFC East has gotten markedly better yeah. in any particular way. I mean, what is? I mean, when is the last time the Pats didn't get 12 wins? 
How many of the last five <laughs> it's years? It's been a long time. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> odds are, unless Brady breaks down. Yeah. I mean, even the year Brady was out for the whole year, they still won 11-5. and five. Yeah. Cade, what well, do you have? Over, under, which I'll one? I'll go over with the, on the Pats, and I'll go over on the Eagles. Okay. I'm a believer. Adi, any? Any? Beliefs. I'm going to go under on the Pats. Oh, I'm I'm still betting against Tom Brady. <laughs> well, you'll eventually be right. And then I'm going under on the Eagles. I'll Sorry. take over on the Pats and under on the Eagles. All right. got to start keeping score, fellas. This is just cheap talk at the moment. All right. If you want more cheap talk, you can come back. We'll be doing this every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. For Eric, Adi, Shane, this has been Cade Massey. Thanks. Big thanks to Deion Simpkins, to Maddie Datz. And to the listeners, you guys come back and join us next Wednesday morning. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.